Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the only show that takes a look at the obstacles and opportunities open to small to mid-sized enterprises that manufacture here in America. Brought to you by All Metals and Forge Group, with your hosts, Tim Grady and Lou Wise. Welcome, everybody, to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Uh, today's Tuesday. It's one o'clock, and we're going to be talking to a lot of interesting guests today. Uh, and Tim will be with us in just a few moments, uh, having a little technical difficulty, straightening out. I uh, want to talk about last week's show, a little postscript. Uh, last week, we had Black Lung, uh, Scott Schmidt. And Rachel Bishop from uh, their financial services company who specializes in R&D tax credit. And they go into great depth about what an R&D tax credit is. And for the most part, I think that probably not a lot of us really know what an R&D tax credit is. It is not really about research and development. It's about what you do to get a job that's new and different and the government refers to that as R&D, and you can get a tax credit for it. And it can add up to quite a bit of money if, in fact, you are, let's say, a contract machine shop or a contract manufacturer of some type. Anything that you do to create a new product that requires you to do some research and development, you can get a tax credit. So listen to our show last week. That's at mfgtalkradio.com. And uh, tune in. We also had uh, the Institute uh, for Supply Management, uh, Brad Holcomb, who gave his report on business, uh, which showed up at 48.6, which is a little lower than we'd like to see it. Uh, Brad feels as though that's not so terrible, and he's uh, he knows his stuff, so I'll go along with that. Tony Nieves, also committee chair for non-manufacturing report, came up with a stellar number of 55.9. Clearly, this shows that uh, people are spending money, and they have uh, a lot of confidence. A lot of things have happened in the week, uh, this week in news. Uh, We had the Paris Global Climate Agreement. 190 uh, countries uh, had 45,000 government representatives and 25,000 support staff, 900 media, This is really a big deal. The only issue to be resolved is will the legislature of those countries or dictators of those countries uh, pass and activate the the agreement? Uh, So we will have to wait and see how that uh, plays out. Um, Tonight, Tuesday, exciting stuff. We're having the last debate or debacle, whichever it turns out to be. So tune in, and I've, I've heard three different times for the show tonight, 8 p.m., 8.15 p.m., and 8.30 p.m. Uh, Eastern Standard Time. So pick your pick your time frame or double-check uh, the information that I'm uh, giving you. <clears throat> Additionally, uh, the U.S. Uh, budget um, it looks like it may be coming to uh, closure, that they're going to pass this at some point. They have to by Thursday, otherwise they're going to be shutting down. They're going to be shutting down uh, the government or certain segments of the government. Uh, we'll see how the Republicans and the Democrats play nice and make that happen. Uh, Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan have vowed not to bill as a 1.1 trillion with a T, 1.1 trillion deal. So we'll just have to see how that uh, plays out. Uh, lastly, the Federal Reserve today at 2 p.m. is going to release whether or not they're going to raise interest rates or not. And uh, this show is going to be a 90-minute show today, and we'll have to wait and see. And if we do get a breaking news announcement, we will cut into the show and give you the results of what the Federal Reserve is doing. Uh, that all being said, uh, we have today uh, Dan Mexdorf from um, Maypop. Uh, Dan, are you are yes. you with us? I'm well, with you. Into the show again. You're welcome. We'll be talking to us about 
for both coming into future. Why don't we uh, take a look at that? Okay. Excuse me. Um, yeah, manufacturing uh, activity, uh, when you look at it quarter to quarter, like GDP is measured, um, was relatively flat in the first half of the year, you know, maybe up a little bit. And then we had a kind of a surge, or I wouldn't say a surge, but a, you know, a strong rebound in the third quarter. <coughs> manufacturing production grew at a 3.3% annual rate quarter to quarter. Uh, and then, uh, but that was that was led primarily by a, a surge in automobile production, uh, and that has that drove up uh, the, the automobile uh, and parts supply chain and and filtered it through other manufacturing industries. Um, the problem that has been overhanging kind of the industry for the year as a whole has been that inventories were built up during the winter. Because of the uh, West Coast sports sports strike and uh, and the severe winter well. weather, and um, as a result of that, uh, production was stronger than demand, and we've been working off those inventories uh, for the rest of the year. And so I think the fourth quarter, the one just the one we're ending right now, is uh, we know that October um, was okay. It was uh, industrial production grew four tenths percent in October, which is a Pretty strong, you know, fairly strong growth rate. But I'm—you mentioned before the ISM report was not good. It suggested a decline in November. Um, so it, it may be that we'll see a decline, a small decline in November and December uh, in production, such that the fourth quarter, the one we're just ending, is relatively flat on a quarter-to-quarter basis. Uh, but still, it's higher than much higher than a year ago. So we're looking for the year as a whole production and manufacturing to be up 1.8%. Uh, and then our outlook for next year is for acceleration and improvement, um, mainly because a lot of the uh, shocks that hit the econ- hit manufacturing and the economy uh, this year won't re- won't repeat. So uh, you know, we've, we've, had, as you, we've been talking there, the uh, winter weather uh, so far has been – you know, very uh, well. We haven't had a winter yet, so uh, we expect that we will not get another extremely severe winter like we did the last two years, which is you know exceptionally not. I'm not talking about a cold winter. I'm talking about exceptionally cold, exceptionally severe. Right. Uh, so if we don't get that, uh, we won't get another port strike. Um, we won't. Hopefully, we won't see commodity prices. Well, I guess we won't. Pro- we won't see commodity prices drop. Another 20% um, or more, uh, both metals and and agricultural commodities, and we probably won't see another decline uh, appreciation of the uh, the dollar, which um, about 15%. So, which happened this year. So, if we we could get a slight appreciation of a couple percent, but it's not going to be 15%. So, a lot of these shocks that hit manufacturing this year won't occur next year. Uh, in addition, there will be, you know, will be buffered by strong domestic demand, basically driven by consumer spending. Uh, so we expect the the automobile supply chain to be strong. We expect the housing and construction supply chain to to, to grow and, and be strong. So these and some other factors that will uh, will re- basically return manufacturing uh, growth to. To a moderate level, from a very modest level to moderate to a moderate pace of growth. And I, now it seems as though you've uh, pretty much eliminated all the uh, negatives of last year that likely will not reoccur uh, this year. At least those negatives won't recur this year. Uh, mm-hmm. The only thing that uh, concerns uh, me and uh, our associates are, you know, what happens if, in fact, there's some kind of uh, um, terrorist action that could uh, throw the country into a a gray funk, which, of course, we can't uh, predict and we don't know if it's coming, but uh, it's certainly a situation that uh, um, is on the minds of uh, a lot of people at this point. Uh, You did mention also before about uh, uh, consumer spending, and I know the ISM non-manufacturing report came out uh, you know, about a week and a half ago, showing uh, 55. Um, I think nine uh, 
um, showing that uh, their non-manufacturing is very strong. Um, and and the manufacturing is was a little bit on the weaker side, about 48.6, but it's not necessarily terrible. No, it's your, no, it's, your it's, uh, and it's a, there's a lot of um, conflicting uh, signals. So, for example, there's another right. ISM-like report called Market uh, that that does a survey, and their number was uh, 52 something. So, uh, there they showed an uh, increase. While ISM showed a decline, and then the ISM report it showed uh, their their indicator showed uh, our increase in manufacturing production uh, in November, which mm-hmm. is inconsistent with a decline that they they had for the overall. Because you, you you're not going to see an increase in employment if the uh, production is declining. So, you know, it's there's a lot of inconsistencies that I'm seeing. So I I would say that I wouldn't be surprised if industrial production is kind of flat. In November, and it may be down a little bit, maybe up a little bit, but it's not. There's no major problem, and I think you can attribute that to this inventory um, liquidation that I mentioned before Correct. that's been going on. Typically, in our in our business, the all metals and forge group, the forging division, generally speaking, January new orders are January February usually are very strong. Uh, you know, after the November Thanksgiving and December Christmas and New Year's uh, cycle. Uh, so January, usually around the 15th of the month in our business, uh, we see a very strong uh, rebound. Uh, mm-hmm. Last year, of course, the L.A. port issue that, uh, as you pointed out, was uh, a real debacle for uh, for the country. I think it was something like $3 billion a day. Uh, the the uh, economy was hurt. Um, so we'll keep our fingers crossed on that. I think I now see uh, Tim coming on uh, line. Tim, are you with us? Am I hooked up? Can you guys hear me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, our techies really know what they're doing. <laughs> I'm getting well, a kind of a wavy hand motion on that. Dan, I, I'm interested in your report. Your report really covers 27 sectors. Is that right? Uh, yes, we do forecast for 20, uh, 23 of the 27. So, um, yeah, I cover those. I, I watch those industries uh, specifically because they're uh, most of them are manufacturing industries or or um, major markets for manufacturing. Okay, okay. Well, can you hit a couple of the high points for us, uh, for our listeners? Yeah, I mentioned before that um, – the housing supply chain is is ramping up. Um, housing, so housing starts um, will, will be uh, will grow at a relatively fast rate uh, this year, uh, and uh, the the structure is changing. It up until this point, um, well, I guess you put this in perspective. How, housing starts um, are somewhere around uh, 1.2 uh, million units. Uh, the uh, Typical year, a typical housing year should be about 1.6 million units. So it's substantially below what is what you call normal, a normal year, uh, and it's coming up from basically from the dead. It's coming. Uh, it did not recover rapidly during the re- during the recovery. Uh, so it, now it's starting to recover because households are being formed, and the reason they're being formed is because we've had strong employment growth. Uh, so new jobs. With new incomes, uh, mean people can um, move out of the basement. You know, the kids can move out of the basement and get their own You're apartment. Right. <laughs> and those who are in apartments are thinking, well, I, now we can buy a home. So, up until this point, it's, housing has been driven by apartment construction. Uh, going forward, I think it's going to be mainly driven by single-family homes, uh, new household formations of single-family homes. So that that helps um, the housing supply chain. Wood products, non-metallic mineral products, um, which are cement, uh, glass, um, uh, drywall, you know, gypsum, uh, HVAC, uh, heating and ventilation, air conditioning, uh, household appliances, furniture, uh, etc. Uh, motor vehicles and parts have been strong uh, from the get-go, from the beginning of the of the recovery. Uh, it came back rare. Uh, very fast. Uh, motor vehicle uh, sales are above the level they were before the recession, well above it, 
and they're going to set new peaks this year and next year. Um, the low gas prices, uh, the low um, petroleum prices uh, have definitely helped, but again, it's mainly driven by uh, rapid in, uh, improvement in job market. Uh, we have a uh, low unemployment rate. We have strong growth in jobs, which are new workers with new incomes who who need to get to work. Uh, so that plus a, the, some pent-up demand um, that's you know, virtually almost gone, but there is a little bit of pent-up demand from the recession, postponed repa repair and replacement. Uh, and we have a, an aging fleet, a relatively old fleet, motor vehicles that are that are being replaced. So that's the reason for strong housing. I mean, excuse me, strong motor vehicle production. Um, another area that's, that's strong right now and it will uh, see strong growth is construction, excluding the uh, public utilities. So if, if you look at public utilities, they do way down construction and it's, they're declining. Um, and if you look at mining and drilling, Construction, which in the national income accounts is called construction, it's really not, but um, that is negative. But if you look at private, uh, you know, everything else, whether it's a commercial, uh, resident, uh, commercial, recreational, medical, communications, transportation, um, industrial, you know, manufacturing plants is booming right now. Uh, so uh, the the uh, construction market, the non-residential construction market, is growing. So that whole construction supply chain I mentioned before is growing rapidly. Um, medical care uh, is is is, dry, is growing because of the aging population, and we're seeing seeing an improvement in pharmaceutical production, which we haven't seen in the last five years. And the reason for that is if you ever turn the TV on, you're inundated with these drug ads, uh, right? So there's a lot of new patented products that are that are in production right now. Um, the, those are the, the kind of the big drivers uh, uh, of growth. Uh, we see the machinery industry, you know, it's not, it's, it's going to be relatively flat. Uh, it's being held down by agricultural con uh, equipment, construction equipment, and mining and drilling equipment, all and engines and turbines, which uh, kind of feeds somewhat into those. So those um, those pieces of uh, machinery are going to be declining, which kind of offsets the growth that's in commercial and service industry machinery, um, HVAC uh, and, and HVAC um, and industrial machinery. So um, the kind of machinery sector is a, a small decline. Uh, the we're looking we think the uh, commodity prices will remain low, and that's going to hurt the metals industries, so we're not looking for any any growth or hardly any growth for the metals industries like steel, aluminum, fabricated metals. Uh, they should pose very little, if any, growth in 2016. Um, and then there's, I think, two major industries that have been underperforming that will break out kind of next year. Uh, aerospace is one. Uh, Boeing has got huge backlogs, but they've had production problems. Uh, Hopefully that will they are fixing those and they're going to be accelerating their their uh, production schedule. And the other one is um, is chemicals. The, um, we know there's a lot of uh, of uh, organic chemical plants that are being uh, built right now to take advantage of low natural gas prices, which is a feedstock into organic chemicals. And a lot of plants, a lot there's a surge of those chemical plants under construction, um, particularly in the south, that are going to be opening up soon. And should, we should see a, a large improvement uh, in um, basic chemical production. Dan, I want to go back just for a moment to manufacturing plant construction. You said that that was doing well. You know, we haven't seen a lot of capital investment over 2015. Does that look like uh, it's going to pick up in 2016. Um, yes, it will be strong. It's, it's exceptionally strong right now. Um, manufacturing plant construction is up 50 percent, 50 50 percent this year, which is somewhat hard to believe, but it is. Really? Um, the reason it is, the reason for that is, as I mentioned before, these chemical plants. So um, 
Natural gas is a feedstock to organic chem to petrochemicals, to uh, plastics and resins, and to the uh, agricultural chemical, the nitrogen-based chemicals. Uh, so, uh, so not only U.S. firms but uh, foreign firms are taking advantage of that. They're um, they're basically moving in and uh, building plants uh, to, t to take advantage of low natural gas prices. So that's the main driver of it. But there's uh, there's also um, uh, other industry like food. Uh, food is uh, industries that have that have high capacity utilization rates right now. So uh, food the food industry uh, is one. Um, even even the paper industry is has high capacity utilization rate. Uh, so the the chemicals, food, um, and then the, um, the the transportation industries, particularly uh, motor vehicles. Uh, a lot of plants to take it, to uh, keep up with the growth in motor vehicle production and parts, motor vehicles and part production. Uh, so those areas are, um, uh, so we're, we are seeing this kind of rebound in plant construction. I don't think it can last much longer. I think if it's going to grow in 2016 and then we should see a fall off uh, because it is, because it grows, so, because it increased 50% this year. And if it grows another seven or eight percent next year, on top of that, this year's production or this year's construction, uh, after that, 2017, 18, 19 is going to decline, just because it's driven by this. Uh, a lot of it's driven by the surge in the, in uh, chemical plants. That you know, once they're built, then you just don't need more, right? So you go back to normal replacement cycles for for other plants. Uh, Dan, let me ask you. I think in about 45 minutes, the Fed Reserve is going to be making an announcement uh, about interest rates as to whether they're raising it or not raising it. So first, I have a question is, would you like to weigh in on which way you think it's going? And two, if it, they do raise interest rate, what kind of impact is that going to have on the economy? Well, I think it's uh, – I think the – Probabilities are very high that they will raise the interest rate, the federal funds rate, a quarter percent. Um, right. The chairman said she she was going to do it, and the committee's behind it. Um, so it, it's mainly symbolic. It has will have virtually no impact on the economy. A quarter percent of a of a rate that remember the federal funds rate is the is the rate that the banks. Uh, will lend each other funds for it's it's a right. so it's it's not even something you can you can tap I mean it's not it's a it's an interbank um, rate uh, so it does affect other short term rates it has virtually no effect on the long term rate so it's you know it's a very overnight type rate it's a very short term rate uh, so it's it's mainly symbolic it, it kind of sets the the um, the stage for normalization of interest rates. So I guess the opposite, uh, I'd rather answer kind of the opposite. What if they don't raise interest rates? What if they keep rates too low for too long? Well, then you get what we had um, before the last recession. You get a you get an asset bubble that, because that means that the, fun, the uh, supply of money will start accelerating faster than goods are being produced, and and uh, we get the, we've already got this. Uh, search for yield uh, or money traveling around the world trying to find a, a little bit higher interest rates or higher rate of return. So it it goes into the stock market. It overvalues the stock uh, the markets. It goes into housing prices. Um, it goes into art, uh, the market. So you, you, when you start seeing these bubbles forming in the asset markets, uh, it's it's that's, that's exactly what happened last time uh, in. And the um, the mid 2000s that led to the 2008-2009 recession. So I think it, it's a necessary requirement that we need to raise interest rates. We need to normalize interest rates. Uh, they've been uh, they've been virtually the, the very short term rate. The federal funds rate's been essentially zero for, since the well before the you know before since the recession began uh, in 2008. So uh, it's it's kind of overdue uh, in a, in a lot of ways, and I think um, a sh what really really would 
uh, what's important is not the fact they're raising it. It's when they're when are they going to do the next raise? When or how rapidly are they going to normalize their interest rates? If they raise interest rates too rapidly, then that can slow the economy down. But um, to begin uh, a, a tightening a monetary policy, um, I think that's a you know that's a necessary requirement. Uh, otherwise, you're going to set in place the next bubble, which will cause the next recession. Uh, Dan, uh, you, we were hearing all the uh, candidates and uh, politicians talking uh, on TV and radio and such regarding we have to do something about jobs. Meanwhile, we've added millions of new jobs over the last uh, three, four years, uh, and they talk about um, uh, improving this and improving that. Meanwhile, things are going along and getting better slowly. It's been a slow recovery from the recession. What are they talking about, or is this just politics? Well, you know, you can look at any statistic. You can slice it any way you want to, to suit your agenda. So uh, the the unemployment rate is 5%, which is, is historically low. Um, the It could be – so you could say, well, that's great. Uh, we're, we're, we're seeing – I mean, you, you probably talked to manufacturers or other business people are talking about skill shortages. So we've been hearing sure. skill shortages for the last several years. So the unemployment rate has has gotten lower since we started our first starting era of it. So in, in many cases, you can make the case that you know we're we're uh, have widespread skill shortages, and it won't be long before we will have widespread labor shortages. So um, you know that's kind of the, the optimistic case because we need mm-hmm. labor shortages before employers are willing to raise wages, uh, and uh, we need higher wages. Uh, to get basically high uh, inflation, to get income growth, strong income growth. Up to now, we've been feeding consumption or feeding uh, consumer spending through new people with new jobs, and very little of the consumption growth is coming from people who have jobs getting wage increases above the rate of inflation. Uh, so, which is uh, so we, we're getting it through this new job growth, and eventually the new job growth is going to slow. As, it's got to slow. It can't continue. It jobs increased 2.2 percent this year. Uh, the economy mm-hmm. grew uh, two and a half percent. So that, that tells you that most of the growth of the economy is coming from new people with new incomes. You know, new workers with new incomes. So you know that can't be sustained because we will run out of people in, in a few years. It, the unemployment rate, you know, will go down. Uh, can go down further, but. Uh, there is a limit in, a, in terms of how many people that we, you know, that come into the labor market each year. So the growth has got to be more driven by people who have jobs getting wage increases above the rate of inflation, and so you need a tight labor market to get that. Uh, on the other hand, you know, some pundits are uh, point to the fact that the participation rate, the number of people who are uh, who want uh, are looking for jobs. You know, they're, they're willing to work and or have jobs. That's the total labor force. That uh, the people that there's a lot of people who have dropped out of the labor force, stopped looking, and they could come back. And uh, if, so, if you if you take other measures of unemployment, if you look at discouraged workers, and if you look at people who are working part time and voluntarily, those who are working part time that really want a full time job. Then you see more. There is more slack in the market, but um, I think uh, in general the the, the mark, labor market is tight. Tight. Uh, it's, it's, there's not a shortage yet, but uh, I think it's a relatively tight um, market. Uh, so it, we always need job growth. We need to maintain job growth, but uh, we're not going to be able to accelerate job growth uh, from this year's rate. It's going to slow from 2.2 percent to maybe 1.8 percent. 1.4% down until we get to about 1%. A little bit less than 1% a year is is typical um, population-based job growth, and, and we will get there within a few years. So we're going to see decelerating growth in jobs, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's that's will happen. Just it's demographically, you know, it's driven by demographics. 
So what we need to do re to replace those new workers with new jobs, uh, you know, as, as we decelerate, is to is to have people who have jobs get wage increases that are above the inflation rate. And the reason employers would do that is if their productivity went up and they could afford to pay them more. Right. So the, the missing link, the missing, uh, the magic link that we're missing right now is strong productivity growth, and we we're not getting that. Uh, it's exceptionally weak. As I mentioned, 2.2 percent growth in people, and only 1.1 or 2.5 percent growth in output. So you know, where's the productivity? Uh, so the missing link mm -hmm. is productivity growth. Well, Dan, we uh, we appreciate you uh, sharing uh, these insights with us. Uh, we're going to take a commercial break here in just a moment. But before we do, where can our listeners get their hands on your report? If you go to our website, it's maypie.net, and then you'll see the research tab, and so click on research, maypie.net backslash research. Great. And we've been talking with Dan Mextroth, who is uh, Vice President with uh, MAPI, and uh, we ask all of our listeners to go take a look at that report. It's got a lot of information in it that we couldn't cover everything on the show today. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back with Manufacturing Talk Radio. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. How do you keep your business humming? Where do you go when you're looking for quality suppliers of new equipment, components, MRO supplies, repair services, or even raw materials? 30 years ago, you would have turned to the Thomas Register. Today, those big green books are better than ever at thomasnet.com, industry's leading platform for product sourcing and supplier discovery. You can easily find that local machine shop, national distributor, OEM, or any supplier having the right quality certification. Fast and free. You can even get to specific products, components, or downloadable 3D CAD drawings simply by entering specifications or part numbers. There's a reason ThomasNet.com has become the go-to supplier discovery tool for procurement professionals and engineers. There's simply no other resource like it, and it's all free. Go to ThomasNet.com today and see how top-notch supplier discovery doesn't have to put a dent into your bottom line. American Crane and Equipment Corporation in Douglasville, Pennsylvania is a leader in specialized cranes, hoists, and material handling equipment for industries including aerospace, nuclear, oil and gas, transit, construction, and waste handling. Call 877-877-6778 or visit AmericanCrane.com. That's AmericanCrane.com or 877-877-6778. 6778. All Metals and Forge Group is an ISO 9001 AS and EN 9100 manufacturer of open die forgings and seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, copper, titanium, and nickel alloys. Visit us at steelforge.com or call 800-600-9290. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. And we have uh, Bruce McDunphy. Bruce, are you with us? I am. Can you hear me? I can. And Bruce is with Manufacturing Marketing Institute. That sounds pretty impressive, uh, Bruce. <laughs> Give me a little background. Sure. It's um it's Bruce McDuffie, by the way. No end there. <laughs> Sorry and, about um, that. That's okay. You did pretty good. <laughs> Manufacturing <laughs> Marketing Institute, it's um an organization I started a few months ago, and the mission is to advance the practice of marketing in manufacturing. And so based on my twenty plus years of experience in sales and marketing in industrial and manufacturing environments. And my current um, role as a consultant, I've learned that manufacturing just is behind the power curve when it comes to marketing. And without being pejorative here, but a lot of marketing manu manufacturing companies, a lot of manufacturing companies are still marketing 
like it's 1980s. And my purpose here with MMI, with the Institute, is to help manufacturing companies really take advantage of modern marketing strategies and tactics and tools and teams. That's what we're trying to do. We your uh, some of your points about that. Um, what what do you find the manufacturers are typically not uh, doing uh, in terms of um, uh, not having their father's machine shop uh, environment? Well, what they're not doing that they should be doing, in in my opinion, and based on a lot of research out there, is that manufacturers need to be engaging with the people in their target audience before they ever know that somebody's interested in their product. So, you know, for example, we all buy things the same way nowadays. Say we're going to buy a new road bicycle or a new digital camera. First thing we all do is go to the internet, do a search in Google or Bing or one of the engines, and we search about the product we intend to purchase. And we do our self-education, we do our research, and we pretty much make up our mind what we're going to buy before we ever reach out to the person who makes that or, or to the, the um, let's say, to the seller. And so in that, and it could be anywhere from zero to 80% or from uh, 60 to 80% of the buyer process is completed before the manufacturer ever knows there's any interest. So what they need to be doing is using modern technology through the internet, and there's plenty of tools out there, and there's plenty of tactics out there to engage and provide information, provide useful information to people while they're in that self-education phase. And the manufacturers who can do that will really get a huge advantage. So, uh, Mr. McDuffie, this is Tim Grady, uh, co-host with Lou here on the show. Um, if manufacturers are marketing like it's the 1980s, what do they need to be doing for the 2000s, the 21st century? Sure. They need to – this is going to sound crazy to a lot of manufacturers, but what I tell them is to stop pitching their products. And let me clarify, stop pitching products, stop talking about your products, stop talking about your company during the engagement phase. The engagement phase is sometimes called top of the funnel. So what they should be doing is instead of talking about products or pitching products, they should be helping the people in their target audience. And the assumption is people in their target audience, if they've chosen it well, these people or these companies will eventually buy what they're manufacturing. So they should be helping these people to be better, to relieve a pain point, or in some cases to help them enjoy a passion more. I think we're having a bit of a technical issue. Uh, give us one moment. Okay. Okay, Bruce, are you back? Yep, I'm here. Can you hear me? Okay, Tim, are you Hello. on the line with me? Uh, I am here if you can hear me, and... It looks like we've uh, looks like Bruce, we may have gone dead on the uh, on the broadcast end. Can you guys uh, hear me now? I can hear you. Lou cannot. Our engineer cannot. So I think we've lost okay. you on the broadcast end. Should uh, I call back in? <laughs> Lou, can I hear you now? Um, can you guys back. hear me Thank now? You. Yeah, we're back. Okay. Sorry, sorry for the disconnect here. Are you guys hearing me now? Yes, uh, I can hear you fine. And, yep. and you're hearing me? Okay, we're all back. Sorry, uh, okay. uh, listeners. Uh, we have these technical issues periodically. Um, Tim, I, I missed out what where we where we were going. I couldn't hear. Where did you guys lose me? Yeah, we were really talking with Bruce about what manufacturers need to be doing. Uh, in the 21st century to engage with their uh, prospective buyers. And, you know, and there's a there's really kind of two groups here, I think, Bruce, correct me if I'm wrong. You've got the B2B group, 
a manufacturer is making a part or a component he's going to sell to another manufacturer. And then you've got the B2C group, uh, the manufacturers are making products for the consumer market. Uh, would right. your advice be the same to both? It would. My advice would definitely be the same to both. And I think the difference is that the B2C manufacturers are way ahead of the B2B manufacturers. You know, if you look at companies, the big guys like like Nike, who's manufacturing shoes, or Apple, who's manufacturing phones, those companies... I think we can all agree, marketing, they're good marketers, they're great marketers. Still a lot of B2C companies who are are not um, engaging very well, and I would say I'd say the majority of B2B companies are still missing it. What would you uh, recommend? Uh, I'm, I'm a manufacturer, and uh, All Metals and Forge has been on the Internet since uh, 1994, uh, so sure. we, we were early adopters, and uh, uh, but I, I know there's still manufacturers out there who tell the to call me, I can turn my my text machine on. So <laughs> the real slow adopters are still out there. Um, what would you recommend as a, as a uh, project going forward for a small to medium sized manufacturing company that is uh, in, in in the dark woods, so to speak. How, how would you, dark ages, maybe. Yeah. How, would you, how would you get them going? What, aside from contacting a marketing consultant first thing. Sure. Yeah, there's a number of things that they can do. And the first thing that I recommend is to, and this goes along with the stop pitching products for the engagement the first thing is to take a real look at your your target audience and don't think about your target audience as far as what can I put on my product or what can I do to my product to get them interested or to get them to buy it. Let's think of it that way. Think about what is a common pain point in your target audience. I'll give you an example. Um, I worked with a, for a company that manufactures electronic measurement instruments for humidity. And the company always was saying, here's our, our product. It, it's accurate. It's got great resolution. It's got all these features without getting much engagement, without getting much growth. So we took it and we flipped it and we said, okay, what problem does this audience have where we can help? And we found out the problem is humidity is a very difficult measurement to make. It's very hard to do it reliably and re with repeatability. So we said, all right, we've got experts in-house who know about humidity as a science and know about the measurement of humidity. Let's educate the people in that target audience who, again, will one day buy a humidity transmitter. Let's educate them about the science of humidity. Because if they know about what affects the measurement and how to actually make the measurement without affecting the sensor negatively, they'll be better at their job. So we helped them to be better at their job. So manufacturers should turn it around and say, what is that pain point in the target audience? And what is our expertise? And the intersection, I call it the sweet spot of engagement. That's your topic. You take that topic and you develop a piece of content around that topic. And then you make it available to your audience. I guarantee you, you'll be amazed at the difference between offering that content and talking about product features. Is that Bruce, kind of where you, you were going with it? Yeah, Bruce, you were talking about, um, or you've mentioned that, you know, a modern marketing strategy for manufacturing companies is a window that's slowly closing. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you explain to our audience what, what you mean by that? Sure. Right now, manufacturing companies, and let's say most B2B manufacturing companies, small and medium sizes, are still marketing, again, like it's 1980s, doing a lot of trade shows. They got sales feet on the street, and marketing is not significant in their organizations. So eventually, manufacturing companies will catch on to what I'm saying. They're already starting to catch on. And it's not really hard to do. I mean, it's hard to start, and there's some big obstacles. But once 
competitors catch on, they're all going to be doing it. It's just like a web page. Back in the 90s, having a website was an advantage. But now everybody has a website. So the window is closing because manufacturers are catching on to this engagement tactic, to learning how to get that attention. And as everyone does it, the window will close and it'll be a level field again. But the companies that can do it now will have a huge opportunity. That's why the window's open. But let me let me interrupt here for a moment. Uh, in 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 the world of marketing, and, and I agree with you that from 1994 to today, uh, if you haven't changed since 94, you're doomed. Uh, so man, uh, marketing is a it's, it's not a one-time event. It's an ongoing phenomena that you have to keep on changing, altering, and bringing data and information to your um, would you comment on that? You're breaking up a little bit there, but I think um, what you were asking was about how the marketing function maintains or goes forward. Was that it? What I'm saying is that uh, marketing is not a one-time. Right. You keep changing and adding uh, social media. Uh, mm-hmm. You have to keep on building on top of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you have to have a, a, a momentum. You can't just yeah. have I, – I remember in 94 when we uh, started our first website and we had, we had 100 visitors. I, we we thought that it was New Year's <laughs> Eve around the office, sure. and um, you know. Then I said, "Well, how about a, a thousand? What do we have to do to get a thousand people a day?" Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. now we've gone over you know twenty one years of uh, marketing on the internet, and we we have fifty to sixty thousand visitors a month, uh, sure. which you know as a as an end user. Uh, and not the search engine, uh, you know, 50,000 people a month, that's a lot of people coming to you. Um, and what number are we looking at now? I'm looking at 100,000 a month. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but my engineer just fell off the st- stool. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's, an, it's, not a, it's not a destination. It's a voyage. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That's correct. And... You know, another surprising thing I find about a lot of manufacturers is that most of them, and this is anecdotal evidence, by the way, but most of them do not have a proper marketing plan. And I think it's critically important to first have that foundation. It's just like building a house. Without a strong foundation, it doesn't matter what the framework is and everything else above it doesn't matter. And if you can consider the framework stuff like social media, your your emails and you know all the, that digital stuff. Without a strong foundation, you're going to go all over the place, and it's going to be a mess. So yeah, you have to have a strong foundation, and then you build upon that. And then nowadays, with the technology that's available, you, you, it's much much easier to measure than it used to be. And everything sure. you do should be in line with the strategy or the mission, and then measured. And then you tweak and adjust and and the better you get, and you can get better and better at it. So, yeah, it's definitely. And you know what else is surprising is that in, in a lot of manufacturing companies, marketing is just, the function marketing is just not a strategic component of the business. Marketing with a leader doesn't sit at the leadership table. That's correct. And, yeah. and additionally, and I don't know if you were going to say this, so forgive me for interrupting, but you also have... The, the the guy who own, who holds the purse strings, your your CFO, if he doesn't understand marketing, you have an up, upward uh, upward problem in, in trying to get uh, uh, the adequate uh, budget to do marketing. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. And and you know, part part of the fault is with the marketers themselves because they sure. don't know how to talk the C-suite language, right? Correct. You go up and, and you tell the CF, a marketer goes up and tells the CFO and uh, he or she might say, wow, we have, um, we got a six, six and a half percent click through rate on our last email. CFO doesn't care. <laughs> or somebody says, hey, we have 
6,000 likes on our Facebook page. CFO doesn't care. But Correct. if a marketer says, hey, our marketing, uh, qu- our quarterly marketing program contributed to 25% of the closed opportunities for uh, X million dollars, mm-hmm. he get his attention, right? That is correct. That is correct. And that's why I communicate with our CFO here. He actually sits in uh, lately in our marketing meetings. So he has a better understanding Great. of how we're spending it uh, and what we're spending it on and what the return is. You know, they, they love that expression, ROI. Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, it, it, it's important that both management and uh, – uh, your finance people are in in the uh, in the loop. So, yeah. going forward, in terms of you know talking with uh, your clients, for example, uh, mm-hmm. do you educate your clients first about marketing, the new marketing, as opposed? To- Absolutely, yeah. My clients are are manufacturing companies, usually small to medium sized businesses, and it's hard to tell them. As I was mentioning, it's hard to tell them you got to stop talking about your products for the engagement funnel. When mm-hmm. you get someone down lower in the funnel who's, who's in a buying, ready to buy and they've got the BANT, you know, the budget, what is it, a budget, authority, need, and timing, yeah, pitch your products. That's when you do it. But for the rest of your audience who doesn't have an immediate need or an immediate ability to buy, don't talk about your products because nobody cares. Nobody cares about your product until they're ready to buy it. And so the way you want to do it is you want to create, I tell them, create TOMA. And TOMA is top of mind awareness. And you create TOMA and you create credibility and you create reciprocity with that target audience. And so when the day comes around and they're ready to buy the product you sell, you're going to get the call and you're probably going to get the business. And that's how I start talking to them about it so we can shift away from ads about products to ads about helpful information. When you say helpful information, uh, let's talk about, um, for example, a manufacturer of uh, gear blanks, okay? There's nothing more boring than a gear blank. And if any of you (laughs) or listeners are gear blank manufacturers, I'm sorry, this is only an example. Uh, so here we have maybe a gear I'm sorry. Man- maybe, sorry. Maybe I'm sorry to interrupt, but maybe you could tell me maybe you what a gear blank is because I'm not sure right now. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're really having a technical issue here today, and uh, I, I didn't quite get what you said, uh, Bruce. But let me just go on from where I was. Uh, so you have a gear blank manufacturers making gears that go into other machinery or into aircraft or other transportation uh, products and such. How do I um, make that interesting um, other than telling the market what I do? Or would you suggest that we teach the market about what that particular product will do to enhance uh not necessarily your product, but what the general product will do to enhance uh, their end end product uh, uh, that will go to the marketplace. Well, I would suggest, can you guys hear me okay now? Am I coming through? Yes. Okay. I can. So a a gear blank, there's there's a purpose for a gear blank. And people who, who purchase gear blanks, they deal with problems. They have pain points about whatever, wherever they're putting that gear blank. I guarantee you there's at least one pain point. And it doesn't have to be a pain point that is solved by a gear blank because maybe all gear blanks are perceived as commodities. So you find that pain point, and I don't know what it is, but we dig in there and say, okay, the pain point is that maybe it's a, a compliance, a federal regulation compliance issue or Maybe it's an efficiency issue, or maybe it's um, something along those lines. And then you say, okay, in our gear blank factory, we've got experts in regulations. So we're going to teach them about the regulations around gear blanks first. So we're not talking about the gear blank. We're talking about the regulations. 
because they don't understand them. That's how I approach it. (laughs) Good point. Good point. Uh, Tim? Uh, Bruce, you talk about a audience-facing mission statement. Mm -hmm. First off, what, what is it? And second, why is it important? Good. And the audience facing mission statement is the, let me step back a bit. So you get, I look at it as a Venn diagram and there's two intersecting circles. One of the circles is the pain points that's common to the people in your target audience. The other circle is your expertise in house. And the intersection is where you're going to help your target audience, the people in your target audience to relieve that pain. The mission statement says, um, addresses that intersection and says our mission, the mission of our engagement marketing is to, and then you make the statement. Let me give you an example. Maybe it'll help clarify. Let's go back to the um, humidity instruments. No, actually, this one's even better. It's um, a company that manufactures navigation charts, air navigation charts. And they want to sell more charts. They print them. They want to sell more charts to the general aviation community. You know, the people who take a small uh, Cessna airplane and they fly for fun as a hobby. It's a passion for them. Okay. So the, the, this is a passion point. And in the target audience, their passion is to be a better pilot. They love to talk about how great of a pilot they are and how proficient they are and how good they are. The company that manufactures the charts could say, hey, buy our charts. Our charts are the best. They're the most accurate. They have most information, blah. But it would be better to say, we're going to help you to be a better pilot. And we're going to help you to be a better pilot by teaching you better navigation, to be more proficient at navigation. So the sweet spot is is helping general aviation pilots to be better pilots. And the mission statement just rephrases that. It says, our content that we're creating in marketing, the mission is, the audience-facing mission statement is, this content must help general aviation pilots to be better pilots. That's the mission. Make sense? Sure. Absolutely. And and one more thing, it's audience-facing the reason I call it the audience-facing mission statement is because all too often when corporations talk about their mission statement, it's about them. It's about our mission is to be the, the global leader in manufacturing the highest quality widgets, blah, blah, blah. It's not that. It's the mission to help the people in the audience to be better. Okay. Um you know we're going to uh, we're going to take a quick commercial break here uh in a minute a minute or so uh okay. Bruce so uh we're going to be back with manufacturing talk radio and in the the next half hour we'll talk about uh, a couple of the other topics let me okay. take a quick commercial break and we'll be right back in just a few moments with manufacturing talk radio manufacturing talk radio will be right back How do you keep your business humming? Where do you go when you're looking for quality suppliers of new equipment? Components, MRO supplies, repair services, or even raw materials. 30 years ago, you would have turned to the Thomas Register. Today, those big green books are better than ever at thomasnet.com, industry's leading platform for product sourcing and supplier discovery. You can easily find that local machine shop, national distributor, OEM, or any supplier having the right quality certification. Fast and free. You can even get to specific products, components, or downloadable 3D CAD drawings simply by entering specifications or part numbers. There's a reason thomasnet.com has become the go-to supplier discovery tool for procurement professionals and engineers. There's simply no other resource like it. And it's all free. Go to thomasnet.com today. And see how top-notch supplier discovery doesn't have to put a dent into your bottom line. American Crane and Equipment Corporation in Douglasville, Pennsylvania is a leader in specialized cranes, hoists, and material handling equipment for industries including aerospace, 
nuclear, oil and gas, transit, construction, and waste handling. Call 877-877-6778 or visit AmericanCrane.com. That's AmericanCrane.com or 877-877-6778. All Metals and Forge Group is an ISO 9001 AS and EN 9100 manufacturer of open die forgings and seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, copper, titanium, and nickel alloys. Visit us at steelforge.com or call 800-600-9290. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Welcome back, everyone, to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We're talking with Bruce McDuffie, who is the executive director of the Manufacturing Marketing Institute. He's got some very interesting points on how to help manufacturers market in the 21st century. Uh, Bruce, one of the points that you bring up is uh, uh, something I found very interesting called the One Revenue Team concept. Can you go over Mm -hmm. that a little bit for our listeners? Sure. This is um, this is sort of my my dream of how mar- how manufacturing actually ends up to go to market, and I call it the new way to go to market. And I'm actually writing a book right now about that's the title, the new way to go to market. And the the dream is or the vision is that we stop in manufacturing, we stop talking about the sales team and the marketing team. Because as we know in manufacturing, never the twain shall meet, right? <laughs> and it's very rare in a marketing organization, I keep saying that, it's very rare in a manufacturing organization where those two are aligned. And in fact, companies that do claim they have strong sales and marketing alignment have significantly more leads, more revenue, and more profit. And so instead of saying we've got our sales team and we've got our marketing team, because they don't understand each other, let's just make one team, we'll call it a one revenue team. And the one revenue team is led, ideally, I would say, by a marketing professional who has sales experience. And the one revenue team has the mission to bring in the revenue to the company. And yes, there's some of the people on the team are in the field talking directly to customers. Some of them are inside talking to prospective customers on the phone. Some are creating campaigns that engage with the target audience. And some are maintaining the website. Same description, job descriptions, but they perceive themselves as one revenue team. And I think that would make a huge difference to a company towards everyone striving in the same direction everyone on the same team, on the same train. That's what I'm talking about there. Uh, Bruce, I, I I agree with what you, what you say. I, I don't know if in reality it happens that way. And, you know, you, you did say this was a dream of yours. Uh, I, don't know if it, I don't know if it works that way in reality. Uh, I'm, I've been in uh, manufacturing uh, for over 50 years. And no matter what size company you are, whether you're a small ma and pa or even large corporations, uh, it's difficult to have the one team concept uh, be totally effective because there's there's, uh, inner strife between uh, sub teams and uh, the sales team thinks one way, uh, the administrative team is thinking another way. Your finance team is thinking another way, and upper management is just hoping that everybody is pulling this, pulling all the oars in the same direction. And yet, I don't, I don't feel it's uh, it's that way. Uh, I've talked with over the years many many uh, companies and uh, uh, company owners and presidents, CEOs, and so on. And one of the biggest problems that uh, that I've heard over the years is that the upper management, uh, I'm going to say it, dreads the fact that he can't seem to work, pull, or that's really the problem that getting. 
you're, you're breaking up. Yeah. You're breaking up pretty bad there. Can can we try it again? Yeah. Uh, what I was saying was, it's hard to get a team working together, going in the same direction. Everyone mm-hmm. has their own um, self-interest, team interest, mm-hmm. and it uh, it it doesn't. It takes a lot to get everybody in the same way. Do you have any yep. uh, recommendations? Yeah, I think um, I agree. It's very hard. It's very difficult, and. That's why it's a dream. <laughs> I don't know of any company. I know of one company um, manufacturing electronic instruments for the telecom industry. And the leader there, he was his leading uh, title was the vice president of marketing. And he led the entire, no, he, he didn't lead the team. He was working towards that direction and they called it a commercial team. So, it's something, you know what, if somebody, if a manufacturing company came up to me and said, hey, Bruce, we want you to be our chief marketing officer or VP marketing, and we want you to lead our team, I would propose that. I'd say, hey, let's for, let's make it one team. Let's have it be the old sales and old marketing team, bring it together, and let's try it. I think it would be challenging, but I really think it would work. Bruce, uh, we're having some interesting technical difficulties, as both you and our listeners have experienced, and I, uh, I think uh, we're probably going to have to have you back on another show somewhere in the future. Um, okay. We're going to have to sign off on this one and see if we can't get some uh, wiring uncrossed because we're clearly having <laughs> okay. some challenges. But yeah. we appreciate okay. you being on the show, and we'll talk to you again in the near future. Okay. For all of our listeners, let me apologize for the issues that we've been having, and uh, we'll be back again next Tuesday with the Manufacturing Talk Radio. But that really wraps us up for our show today, and we look forward to you listening in uh, the very near future. Thanks again for being our listeners. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.